Welcome back, everyone, to another China History Podcast. We're going to finish off uh, Kawashima Yoshiko in this episode. So, let's get right on it. After proving so useful to the Japanese cause in China in the January 28th incident, and in her role as Commander Jin Bihui, fighting bandits in Ruhe, Kawashima Yoshiko, so young and willing to go along with the Khan, well, she had become like this Swiss Army knife that had a multitude of applications for her handlers. So at this sensitive time in the early years of Manchukuo, these former Qing dynasty royals like Pu Yi, his brother Pu Jie, Kawashima Yoshiko, the Empress Wanrong, they were all actors in this bunraku play with their Japanese puppeteers dangling them in front of everyone, insisting to the world, you see, this is for real. This ain't no make-believe. By April of 1933, with Kawashima Yoshiko's legend and renown on afterburner in some circles, Muramatsu Shofu's novel, The Beauty in Men's Clothing, was published in book form after first appearing serialized in a Japanese magazine. This book, mentioned last episode, was a mega sensation. And considering the times, it sure raised a lot of eyebrows, exaggerating the already bodacious lifestyle Yoshiko lived and even alluding to the alleged rape and sexual abuse by her father. Muramatsu spared no sordid detail. And as for Yoshiko, eh, she ate it all up and plunged headfirst into the limelight and surfed this monster wave of publicity all the way to the beach. She flew to Tokyo at the height of all the hoopla and stirred things up, not disappointing the gossip columnists at all, saying the kind of jaw-dropping things she was famous for saying and acting as flamboyant as ever whenever seen in public, caught up in the moment, preening in front of all her adoring followers, making suggestive remarks to provocative questions, all her loose talk came back to haunt her one day. She constantly complained to the press that her life was filled with rumors and hearsay and that none of what people read was true. But rarely did she ever give people reasons to think otherwise. She had no agent who would tell her when to shut up. 1933, 26 years old, she peaked here. Her popularity, the curiosity and interest that so many people had for this cartoon character that the Japanese in China had dolled up to look like this great freedom fighter, Manchu princess, trying to restore the glory of her people. Yeah, this is when the problems began to manifest themselves. After this whole media blitz, Muramatsu Shofu's novel, the commander Jin leading her troops on horseback to fight bandits in Ruhe, and being at the center of all those wild Shanghai nights, Kawashima Yoshiko had now sort of become too famous for her own good. She had no marketable skill set other than being Kawashima Yoshiko. Her father, Prince Su, had been her first means of financial support, followed by Naniwa and others who she had lived off of. She liked to have a good time and didn't like to skimp. She had an entourage wherever she went. Her burn rate was high, and as a lot of people discover, if you can't afford the lifestyle you believe you're entitled to, you have to find someone to handle the financing for you. The next man in Yoshiko's life who became one of her more 
high-profile lovers was Hayao Tada, a major guy in the Manchukuo operation, the chief military advisor to Puyi and to the empire of Manchukuo. He bankrolled Yoshiko during the period when she was his mistress. Yoshiko was also seen regularly with Doihara Kenji, a.k.a. Lawrence of Manchuria, the man who brought us the Mukden incident, the invasion of Manchuria on 9-18-31. He also ran Japan's secret service in China. Doihara Kenji is one of those war criminals who, later on, was deemed rotten enough to end up hanging from the end of a rope in 1948 after being found guilty of war crimes. But in any case, these were the kind of people Yoshiko had cast her lot with. And besides these high-profile characters, she also enjoyed affairs with other powerful and influential people at the time, men and women. Between riding this tidal wave of success as Commander Jin at the Battle of Ruhe and the big splash of Muramatsu's novel based on her life, she felt confident enough to begin going off script. She began to style herself as this Angelina Jolie kind of advocate who wished to call attention to the suffering and plight of the Chinese people. She even began to point to the Japanese military as the bad guys in many instances, mentioning many unmentionable things. She had been the creation of the Guangdong military, but they seemingly created a monster in, well, like all the men in her life up to now, they began to lose control of her. This begged the question in 1933, whose side was she on now? She had always done well in her Matahari, Tokyo Rose, and Lord Ha Ha roles. But now she was starting to worry the ones who had found her so useful and reliable in the past. August 1933, after an eight-year absence, she returned to her old home in Matsumoto. And she was still dressing as a man, but now she was wearing Chinese-style garments. And of course, because of who she was, reporters flocked to her door to get some dirt and Words like no comment or I'd rather not say <laughs> weren't in Yoshiko's vocabulary. She kept on repeating the same message. The fighting has to stop and that China and Japan should reconcile and work for peace. As mentioned at the outset, Kawashima Yoshiko, yeah, she graduated from the school of life and her limited formal education meant that when articulating her thoughts and acting as a spokesperson for the causes that she advocated for? Well, she wasn't that great. She had a ton of shine on her in a Kardashian kind of way. People were intensely curious about every move she made or utterance she said. But in all respects, she was a rather underwhelming speaker. And whilst back in Japan, now a media superstar, she went back to all her crazy antics in public and private. And... Well, you know, she had made up her mind early in life that she was going to do whatever she wanted and wasn't going to stress out about what people said. So she did all the wild and crazy and promiscuous things she was famous for, all the while enjoying the company of several lovers along the way. Around this time, just at the peak of her success, Yoshiko began having a rash of physical problems that... Well, in order to treat them, she had to constantly keep shuttling back and forth between Japanese and Chinese hospitals. 
And because of the chronic pain she was experiencing, well, like it happens to so many in our day, she got hooked on pain-killing drugs, namely the fentanyl and oxycontin of its day, opium. Into the mid-1930s, the stories about some of the brutality meted out against Chinese civilians by the Japanese military were starting to spread. And Yoshiko, if anyone asked her for her opinion, would speak out against this and say all these things that ran counter to the official Japanese narrative. But anyone who knew her whole story was cognizant of her association with many of these Japanese officers and officials who, to one extent or another, already had plenty of Chinese blood on their hands. In March 1937, before all hell broke loose following the Marco Polo Bridge incident in July, Yoshiko gave a speech in which she said these words, sure to outrage the higher-ups in the Guangdong military. Quote, The fact of the matter is that many of the Japanese in China and in Manchuria have crossed the waters to make money hand over fist. I'm telling the truth and not exaggerating when I say that they're only a bunch of losers no one would associate with in Japan. The kind of people who can't hold down a job long enough to feed themselves. The Japanese, who should become the leaders of Asia, go over there and all of a sudden make a quick change into un-Japanese Japanese. They bully our Chinese brothers and sisters, make them suffer, and strike terror into the hearts of the Chinese. They are hated. Tell me, is this acceptable behavior? Japanese from the foreign ministry, the military, the privileged, and the capitalists talk about Sino-Japanese friendship every time they open their mouths. But the Sino-Japanese friendship they're talking about is only a Sino-Japanese friendship that profits the Japanese. End quote. The heads of Japanese operations in China all started demanding that Someone shut her up. In 1937, when she was living in Tianjin, 30 years old now, Yoshiko began working on her autobiography that she would call In the Shadow of Chaos. I couldn't find it on Amazon. As I just said, July 7th, 1937, three years to the day before Ringo was born, the Marco Polo Bridge incident occurred in Beijing. And from this, again, manufactured incident, Japan had their... Casas Belli to launch their attack on China. At the dawn of the Second Sino-Japanese War, Yoshiko had opened a small restaurant in Tianjin. And during this period, into her life, walked Yamaguchi Yoshiko. And the press called them the Two Yoshikos. You might remember Yamaguchi Yoshiko from that Chitaka Xing episode, CHP 228, The Seven Singing Stars of Old Shanghai. This was Li Xianglan, if you recall from that episode, she led this rather extraordinary life. Li Xianglan was about 17, and the other Yoshiko, as I said, was about 30. Let me just read a quote about what Li Xianglan Yamaguchi Yoshiko said about her much older friend. Quote, Kawashima Yoshiko gave me the opportunity to feel liberated from my family, school, and the monitoring of my activities. But I could also sense the sinister decadence and desperation around her. She wore her male military uniform only when she attended parties or ceremonies in her role as Commander Jin Bihui. Otherwise, she wore a man's black satin Chinese robe and cap. She always looked slightly flushed, 
She had a sickly pallor on her face, arms, and skin. She put on light makeup and lipstick and made her eyebrows a little darker. She was always accompanied by a group of 15 or 16 women who were her bodyguards. Of course, Kawashima was the queen of the group. No, she was always in man's clothes, and so maybe she should be called a prince. End quote. She also wrote of Kawashima Yoshiko's nocturnal lifestyle in this way. Quote, in Kawashima's daily life, night and day were the exact opposite of what they were for an ordinary person. I gradually realized that Kawashima's life as Commander Jin Bihui was over, and she had become utterly dissipated. The curiosity she had inspired as the Matahari of the East and those glory days when she had been praised as the Joan of Arc of the East, all that was gone. The Japanese army, the Manchukuo army, and the right-wing Ronin would have nothing to do with her anymore. End quote. At a little bit more than 30 years of age, Kawashima Yoshiko had pretty much burned out. Yamaguchi Yoshiko, Li Xianglan, whose star was now on the rise, was told to stay away from her. Kawashima Yoshiko, no longer the star, began to decay into this pitiful, frail human figure who others avoided too, unwilling to be drawn into her craziness and strange behavior. Her restaurant had shut down by end 1938 after an incident where someone was killed and Yoshiko injured. Her ex-lover, Hayao Tada, now head of the North China Area Army, called on one Sasakawa Ryoichi to deal with her. Sasakawa was a successful businessman with tons of money and nationalist feelings who also, later on, founded the Nippon Foundation. He was also quite tight with the Japanese military. Hayao had called upon Sasakawa to come up with a plan to get rid of Kawashima Yoshiko. Like, permanently. Permanently. By this time, Yoshiko's movements were severely curtailed by the Japanese military. They boxed her in and did all they could to keep her from mischief, especially the kind that embarrassed them. No one could get to her unless they walked that gauntlet of security. Rather than assassinate her, which was sort of what Hayao Tada was hoping for, Sasakawa took her to Japan and set Yoshiko up in the city of Fukuoka and provided for her there. She wasn't in any condition to do much, and by this time Yoshiko was hardly presentable. The opium, drugs, and hard living had already taken its toll. Sasakawa became her lover, and they had an intense and passionate relationship. He was loaded and was able to provide her with adequate surroundings that kept her out of trouble. Or any more trouble than she was in already. The Japanese military in China, who had grown tired of her were relieved to be rid of their creation, Commander Jin, and they counted on Sasakawa to keep her quiet. So began the Fukuoka period in her life. Though under a limited form of house arrest, she was free to move about and became both a regular crazy in the circles she wandered in, as well as a nuisance to local law enforcement. And one other thing, she went about all the time now wearing this white kimono, the kind of thing you would only wear at funerals or occasions marking the anniversary of a death. It was quite shocking for the time, maybe now too, but her access to publicly speaking out on all these sensitive issues, well, that was quashed. By now, the Japanese had rejected her 
and the Chinese saw her as a no-good running dog of the Japanese, despised by both. But she kept up a string of high-profile love relationships. The authorities in China and Japan may have abandoned her, grown sick of her, but her adoring fans, they never grew tired of reading the latest outrageousness in her life. By April 1941, she finally received permission from way high up to be allowed to leave Fukuoka. She probably should have just stayed. By now, she was a physical and emotional wreck. And it didn't take very long into the conversation to figure out she wasn't all there mentally either, and not anyone who should ever be left on their own. Before she returned to China... She spent a bit of time in Tokyo, and this is where she picked up four pet monkeys. And like Michael Jackson's chimp, Bubbles, remember him? These four monkeys became part of her zany identity. She never went anywhere without them. She'd walk around in public all the time with a monkey on her shoulder, which is pretty far out even by today's standards. Even here in L.A., people would say, what the heck? Well, during the late 1930s and into the 40s, she traveled between Japan and China. She once again made it her mission to speak out about peace between Japan and China. By the early 1940s, post-Pearl Harbor, uh, nobody in Japan was interested in hearing that, she had even appealed to Hideki Tojo and repeatedly tried to offer her services as an ambassador of peace. Needless to say, no one took her seriously, and at this point, why should they? She settled down in Beijing with her monkeys. Whether she was living in their world or they were living in hers, hard to tell where to draw the line. Like everyone else, by 1943-44, Yoshiko knew Japan was going to lose the war. But for the time being, she felt her chances were better in China. Then the war ended in August 1945. The atomic bombs were dropped. The Soviets invaded the former Manchukuo. The Japanese military skedaddled back to Japan, leaving hundreds of thousands of Japanese settlers stranded all over the three provinces that made up Manchuria. And they tried to make their way safely back to Japan amidst an angry Chinese populace bent on vengeance against these Japanese civilian men, women, and children. The stories of these former Manchukuo Japanese residents is one so Haunting and bitter, it inspired its own genre of literature. After August 1945, if you were Japanese, it wasn't such a good thing to be on your own in the middle of China. Not for the settlers or for the 200 or so people who made up the Manchukuo imperial court, including the last emperor, Puyi, his empress, Wanrong, and everyone else in that family, including Aishin Jueluo Xianyu, a.k.a. Commander Jin Bihui, and Eastern Jewel. So Kawashima Yoshiko's end came on October 11th, 1945, when she was captured by nationalist troops in Beijing, taken from her bed, barefoot and in her sleeping attire, and thrown into a small, cold, dark prison cell. The next few years were filled with horrendous misery, as it was for the whole Qing royal entourage who had pinned their last hopes on the success of the Manchukuo operation. They, too, were all captured. No one suffered more than Empress Wanrong, the last empress of China, who was also thrown into a tiny prison cell, delirious from withdrawing cold turkey from her decades-old 
drug addiction, her mind never present in the moment. Jailers used to charge admission to locals, allowing them to come and gawk at this decayed royal who people had once bowed before and who had lived a life of sophistication, comfort, and luxury. Now she was dressed in rags like a peasant, withering away, screeching out orders to imaginary servants. Eh, They stopped feeding her after a while, then she just wasted away in her prison cell and died at the age of 39 on June 20th, 1946. Her body was disposed of, no one knows where. After two years of languishing in her own wretched prison cell at Beijing Hebei Model Prison, and after enduring the most degrading and humiliating treatment at the hands of her tormentors, who had no sympathy for Japanese collaborators, Yoshiko finally went on trial in Beijing. The date was October 15, 1947. The whole trial was a spectacle. The public and the government were going to get their retribution one way or another. The case against her and all her eccentricities and strange behavior in society, her privilege, traitorous deeds, reputation as difficult, demanding, and often rude, someone showered with a sense of grand entitlement, and her lascivious romances and public displays of eroticism and the exotic dancing she would do at the Shanghai nightclubs, unconventional for the time, her cross-dressing and sexual openness and the romances with such evil men. Even in 2020, TMZ would have been all over this. And then there was that novel, The Beauty in Men's Clothing by Muramatsu Shofu. Though the book was a fictionalized account of her stranger-than-fiction life, the content of the book was treated as if it were a scholarly paper, and it was used during the trial against her as practically a smoking gun. And then there was the whole matter of her association with the Japanese. After all they had done to China, so fresh in everyone's mind, having such a close association with some of the most evil militarists that the 20th century had produced to date, you know, that she was a collaborator, well, there was no question. From the mid-1920s to the mid-1940s, there were countless articles, interviews, pictorials, newsreels, you name it. There was enough evidence against her to sink a battleship. Her attempts to play this down fell on deaf ears. And I guess you could say for good reason, too. In Kawashima Yoshiko, now 40 years old, she wasn't at the top of her game, so to speak, and was a terrible witness, unintentionally making her situation worse with her clumsy explanations and often incoherent answers. When asked once why she dared to come back to Beijing and why she didn't just stay in Japan, She answered that she had to return because one of her monkeys had diarrhea and needed treatment only available in Beijing. What else could Yoshiko do? She played down her Japanese-ness and tried to present herself as Chinese, but her Japanese was perfect and her spoken Chinese was lacking. She argued, how could she be a traitor if she wasn't even a Chinese citizen? At worst, she was a war criminal. But nowhere could proof of her Japanese citizenship be found because it didn't exist. Naniwa had never registered her. She was utterly unconvincing in her arguments. From her cell, she did. Everything she could to reach out to everyone who might possibly have some influence in saving her life. Even her own adoptive father, Kawashima Naniwa, he feigned like he was trying to help her all this time, but 
he let her go. Everyone let her go. And in the end, the military prosecutors had this to say, quote, The accused, Jin Bihui, also known as Kawashima Yoshiko, is the daughter of the late Prince Su of the Qing imperial family. She was adopted by Kawashima Naniwa and lived in Japan from her childhood. Influenced by her schooling and militarism, she likes to dress in male attire and admires the ways of chivalry and bushido. Because of her relationship to Kawashima Naniwa, she came to know important military and political figures in Japan. Submissive to the whims of an entire country, she allowed herself to be used by them. According to our evidence, after the September 18th incident of 1931, when Japan invaded Manchuria, she participated in traitorous acts against her native land in Shanghai, the Northeast, and other places. For these reasons, we believe that the guilt of the defendant is consistent with the Traitor Punishment Ordinances, Article 2, Paragraph 1, Subsection 1 of the Criminal Code. End quote. Yeah, there was no denying it. After the week-long sensational show trial came to the exciting conclusion, she was found guilty of aiding Japan and betraying her homeland and sentenced to death. As Kawashima Yoshiko, Aishin Jue Luo Xian Yu, Jin Bihui, Dong Zhen, Eastern Jewel, Commander Jin, and all the other identities she had during these final months and days of her life, living under the foulest circumstances, confined, controlled, with no one who pitied her. Did she close her eyes and remember all those times more than a decade before in the spring of 1933 when she was a sensation all across Asia? The beauty in men's clothing, the Manchu princess who, with her racy reputation and all the stories of all the zany antics of her brief life. Let me quote Phyllis Birnbaum. Quote, the verdict condemned her for such activities as becoming a dancer in Shanghai in order to gather information for the 1932 Japanese onslaught there, bringing the empress to Changchun with the help of her brother, Jin Dong, to install her as a female ruler of Manchukuo, serving as advisor to Hayao Tada and building up the military in Manchukuo and other military plots, and trying to get Su Bingwen to surrender leading bandit troops to establish a puppet regime in Zhehe with Puyi as head, plotting to bring Puyi to Beijing in order to revive the Qing dynasty and overthrow the nationalist government, and so on. End quote. Well, regardless of how competent she might have been or how well she prepared her defense or how many witnesses that may have appeared who exonerated her, she wasn't going to be allowed to walk free. There was only one way this was going to end. And that was going to be with a bullet to the back of her head. To the very end, she continued her frantic request to Naniwa and anyone else she thought might help. Everyone in her life had cut her loose. The legendary China-born journalist for Reuters and AP, Spencer Mosa, who flew to Taiwan with Jiang Kai-shek on the last plane out of China, he wrote of Kawashima Yoshiko, quote, Penniless and bereft of her once disarming beauty, the Matahari of Asia is awaiting with resignation her imminent execution. She no longer looks the part of the oriental siren who used her charms to help Japan win the war. 
Her upper teeth are gone, her hair is cut in a mannish bob, and she wears a padded gray jacket and slacks that made her small figure look bigger than it is. Some clues to her vanished beauty remain in her fair skin, large, dark eyes, and small, delicate hands. End quote. Mata Hari, for those who never heard of her, was a Dutch woman who, in 1917, was executed by the French for being a German spy during World War I. Like Yoshiko, she was also accused of being a femme fatale and was famous for her exotic dancing and sexuality. And that's it. March 25, 1948, she was led out into the prison execution ground on a freezing cold Beijing morning. And in a familiar manner, she was shot in the back of the head. She had pleaded that her body not be allowed to be put on display before the public, but they did it anyway. And hundreds of local people came by to cop a gander at her wasted corpse and the gory aftermath of this kind of execution method. Her final pleas were not to defile her in this way, but the nationalist government wanted everyone to see her and therefore displayed this grisly scene to serve as a warning to anyone thinking about selling out their country. In Chinese history books and in popular culture, she's remembered as the Da Hanjian, the great traitor to the Chinese nation. And since that day, which, by the way, some people said was not the end of Kawashima Yoshiko. There was this sort of Bigfoot legend that arose which proffered the notion that it wasn't Yoshiko who was executed on that March morning. It was some stand-in and that she had actually escaped and lived on to secretly carry on her mission of Qing restoration. An unnamed Japanese monk took it upon himself to deal with Yoshiko's remains. He had her cremated and sought to her ashes, eventually taking them back to Matsumoto. And today, if you ever find yourself in Nagano Prefecture, you could head over to Shodinji Temple in Matsumoto and visit her grave. There are still events held today in that town that annually commemorates her life. There's a small memorial room at the temple that has a number of artifacts from her life. In a story like Kawashima Yoshiko... Well, more people than Phyllis Birnbaum wrote about her. Since her death, she has been the subject of endless news articles, TV shows, movies, novels, video games, and manga. If you'd like to learn more about Kawashima Yoshiko, you're in luck. Besides Phyllis Birnbaum's book, there's plenty of other fiction and nonfiction books, serial dramas, articles, and videos you can go groove on. And if you go to your favorite search engine, AltaVista, Excite, Ask Jeeves, Lycos, whatever, go to any of them and search for Kawashima Yoshiko, and you'll be able to see all the famous, iconic images from her childhood to the grainy black-and-white post-execution photos of her lying on a wooden pallet of some sort, surrounded by curious locals eager to get a look-see. Yeah, you'll see them all. I've mentioned her before, the late, great, all-around entertainer who passed away so tragically young at the height of her fame, Anita Mui, Muyim Fong. She starred in the lead role in a 1990 movie about the life of Kawashima Yoshiko. And I had just recently moved to Hong Kong and vividly recall the movie posters for that film all over the MTR came out. And I remember wondering, who was this Chuan Dao Fangzi? 
Little did I know, 30 years later, I'd be doing a three-part podcast series of her life. Once again, I welcome you to sign up for Patreon and subscribe to yours truly. Three bucks a month. There's already a few good stories waiting for you, plus more to come. If you're a PayPal kind of person and would like to donate to the CHP to keep it going, maybe for another 10 years, paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Links are posted at the show notes at the teacup.media website. Well, that's that. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from the city of Los Angeles, California, thanking you from the bottom of my heart for suffering through this series and hoping you'll come back next time for another exciting episode of a China History Podcast. <laughs>